turn with me in the book of Esther to chapter 9. We're going to be reading this morning chapter 9, verse 20, through chapter 10, verse 3. We're wrapping up our study through the book of Esther this morning, and we're going to be looking at this big celebration that took place throughout the Persian Empire as God's people celebrated their deliverance at the hand of God. I'll begin reading in chapter 9, verse 20. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into, into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Amon, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast poor, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written, and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai, to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews, and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people, and spoke peace to all his people." One day, as Jesus was entering into a small village on the border between Samaria and Galilee, a group of ten lepers shouted at him from a distance, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. These were lepers. Lepers were the outcasts of that culture. 
Leprosy is a horrible disease that disfigured the body, sometimes caused parts of the body to break off, made the people ugly, unsightly, and ceremonially they were separated from the people. Jesus looked at these ten lepers and he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they left, on the way to the priests, before they arrived, they were completely healed. Nine of those ten men were so overcome with joy that they had been totally restored to the fullness of their life that I'm sure they ran to tell their family and friends and to get back to the normal life that they'd been separated from for so long. But one of those lepers, the one who was a Samaritan, did not run to tell his family, did not run to, re to resume his life. He ran back to Jesus, and he fell at his feet, and he praised him, and he thanked him. And Jesus looked on him, and he lamented with these words. He said, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Where are the nine? I'm always convicted by that story. Because in my heart, I'm so much more like the nine than I am like the one. God has done so much for me. but I'm so quick to run off and enjoy the benefits of what God has done in my life. And I'm so forgetful to come back and thank him and worship him for what he's done for me. Forgetfulness leads to disobedience. Disobedience leads to apostasy. Worse than forgetting, when I really count the time I spend in making comments about my life, I am certain that I spend more time grumbling about the difficulties and weaknesses that I still face in life than thanking the Lord for all the good that he's done for me. The book of Esther appropriately ends with Purim, a celebration, a feast, a new feast that the Jews added to their year-long series of feasts to celebrate what God had done, this remarkable turn of events that we've been studying these last few months. As we think about Jesus and the lepers, it would not have been right for the Jewish people, having been delivered from total destruction, to just go on with their life, enjoying all the benefits of an, of an extended existence, and God's blessing without stopping, falling on their faces before God, thanking him and celebrating what he had done. We're going to see in this last chapter and a few verses, we're going to see how anybody who has received grace from God should respond and live. First, I want to address the question, why Purim? Because that fascinated me when I really started to look at this chapter. The Jews today still celebrate Purim. But why do they call it Purim? The word poor, you'll remember from back in chapter 3, the word poor is the, it's a Persian word. They borrowed it from the Persian culture in which they were living as exiles. The word poor 
means lot. And by lot, they mean casting lots. In other words, like what we would call a die, or in the plural form, dice. As a matter of fact, porim is actually kind of a weird plural because the I-M on the end of porim is actually a Hebrew ending. So they added a Hebrew ending which made the word plural, but it's actually a Persian word. So it means what we would say, dice. That would be the most uh, clear parallel to the English word we would use, but it's lots. They would cast lots by chance, getting, trying to get some direction from the gods. This is what the, uh, the Persians would do. And so you think about it, why would the Jews, in celebrating this incredible reversal, this great act of deliverance, why would they call their new celebration of this deliverance lots? Why would they do that? It's odd for a couple of reasons. First of all, this is only mentioned once in the story, and it's a very minor detail in the story, actually. And actually, as you read chapter three, you're kind of wondering even why the author threw it in there. Because this is when Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who sought to destroy the Jews, in his plan to get the king of Persia to destroy the Jews by decree, he decided on the day of their destruction, the day that he would write into the decree for the destruction of the Jews, he decided that date by casting lots, casting poor. And, of course, this was a pagan ritual. This is how the pagans would try to get guidance from their gods, by casting lots and by allowing the chance to determine, hopefully the gods would, would speak through uh, what, what we would consider chance, they would speak through that to direct, you know, casting dice, be a way of getting direction from the gods. Why would the Jews take a pagan form of divination which was used to plot their destruction, why would they use that as the name for this celebratory feast? Well, I think it's because it just illustrates what we've seen through this entire book. This book is full of irony. We've said it how many times? Ironic events, ironic statements. It's almost, uh, uh, you know, at times, in spite of the sad story, it's almost a funny story at points because of the incredible irony that takes place during the story. Well, this is another example of it because what is the book of Esther about? What have we said over and over? The book of Esther is about God's providence. How God sovereignly controls all events that happen everywhere in the universe. He, with his unseen hidden hand, works behind all the circumstances of human existence to bring about his will and the good of his people whom he's chosen. This whole book is about providence. God is not named, but he's everywhere, as we've said over and over, orchestrating these events to deliver his people and to bring glory to himself. And so isn't it ironic that a story that celebrates God's providence is celebrated by a feast called Lot's? You can almost imagine Mordecai laughing as he, I don't know if he was the one who actually chose the name, but you could almost imagine him laughing if he did. So let's call it lots. Let's call it chance because we're going to celebrate God's providence. We're going to celebrate God's sovereign rule over our lives. We're going to celebrate God's grace through his sovereign rule over our lives. 
Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. We've quoted this before. It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. To call this celebration Purim is a final dig at Haman and the enemies of God's people. It's kind of the same way, isn't it, how we look at the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't the cross an ironic symbol for our faith? Something that was to the enemies of God, the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the church, something that was an instrument of shame, humiliation, death, and destruction is now to us the place of life and glory, peace and grace. And so we love that old rugged cross, don't we? That's ironic. But that's how God works. That's what we've seen through this entire book is that God is about reversals. And our salvation is the greatest of all reversals. How God has scattered the proud, brought down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate in the the words of Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's about God reversing the fall, reversing the sin and rebellion that has led to our desperate state of being lost under God's condemnation and facing death for all eternity. God has been so good to us. How should we respond? How should we respond to God's goodness to us? That's what the Feast of Purim is all about. The Bible is full of feasts. This book of Esther is full of feasts. And this feast teaches us about how we must respond to God's work in delivering us from shame and humiliation and eternal death. And the first thing it teaches us is that we need to remember. We need to always remember. We underestimate the importance of remembering in our life with Christ. Verse 20, it says, and Mordecai recorded these things. It's pointed out, a very important point, that Mordecai made sure that the entire account of what God had done among his exiled people in Persia, this great deliverance, was recorded, written down, so that it could be passed on to future generations, so that this would never be forgotten. From that point on, For 500 years, the celebration of Purim, the very central event in a Jewish celebration of Purim, is for the entire book of Esther to be read before God's people. They would hear the story as the center of their celebration. Later on, they would develop the tradition of when Mordecai's name was read during the reading of the book of Esther, the people listening would whisper, the memory of the righteous shall be a blessing. And then when Haman's name was read, the people would whisper, the name of the wicked will rot. Later on, they added children to involve children in it. When the name of Haman would be read, the children would shake rattles and bang boards together and stomp their feet to drown out the name of Haman. God's people, God's people have always relied on a faithful recording of God's 
saving work in history. Our whole foundation is built upon a historical record of what God has done to deliver us. You know, we live in a generation that's become very cynical about historical records. People don't study history like they used to. And I think one of the reasons is because we're cynical about history, because we've been told over and over that the people who wrote the, the history books 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, those people had biases. Those people had agendas. And so when they wrote down history, it's corrupted. And so this generation has taken upon itself to try to clean up the historical record and say, no, what they recorded is not a right understanding of the past, but we're going to tell you the right understanding of the past. But the problem is... This generation has biases. This generation has an agenda. And in the midst of all this, people wanting to know what's happened in the past say, can we ever know? Can we trust any historical record? Can we know anything about the past? God's word is different. This is a book of history. This book is full of history from the beginning to the end. And it's a story of history from the beginning to end. And there is a bias to this historical book. There is an agenda to this historical book. But the good news is that bias and that agenda is that of God himself. The Holy Spirit is the author of this book ultimately. And everything that it is in here, it comes from God. We can trust what it says about what has happened in the past. We can know for sure that it is true. We can build our lives upon it because it's sure. The Holy Spirit guided the writing of Mordecai as he wrote down the account of what God did in the story of Esther. The Holy Spirit guided Moses. The Holy Spirit guided Isaiah. The Holy Spirit guided John. The Holy Spirit guided Peter. The Holy Spirit guided Paul. This is God's word. And not only can we trust what it tells us about what has happened in the past, we must trust what it tells us about what had happened in the past. As Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so Mordecai wrote it down so we would know, so that we would remember what God had done. He said, it says there that he wrote these things down to help the people remember the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. The word relief there literally in the Hebrew is rest. And the word rest is extremely important in the history of God's people. The word rest is important in the history of redemption. The word rest is a huge word. It speaks to our salvation. Rest from our enemies. Our identity, our purpose in life, our hope in life is built upon and based completely on the record of God's work of salvation as it's recorded in his word. Not only can we trust it, we must trust what it tells us about what God has done and the implications and instructions that flow out of that. We died with Christ at the cross. 
We were raised to new life with him when he walked out of the tomb. We live under the lordship of Christ, which was established when he ascended to the right hand of God the Father in heaven and took over his role as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only can we, because we can trust the past, we can trust what it says about our future, because the future is God's account of the future already written. We can trust it because God has said it will happen. Remembering who God is and what he has done is a crucial spiritual discipline. How many times when we preach from this pulpit, we tell you, you know, what must we do in response to what God's word has told us? Stay in the word of God. Know the word of God. Study the word of God. Eat, breathe, and drink the word of God. Remember, daily remember. And I think one of the dangers of people in our theological circles is that as we've studied the word in depth, we get to the point where we don't think that remembering is that important anymore. You know, we move beyond the basic things. We want something new, something intriguing, something challenging to think about. But the word of God says, remember, remember. In Joshua, in the book of Joshua, when Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. God told Joshua to have the people set up a, a pillar of stones, a pile of stones. And God gave the reason in Joshua 4, beginning in verse 21. When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Remember what God has done, that you may fear the Lord God forever. Peter says in his second epistle, this is now, this is 2 Peter 3 verse 1, this is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Remember what God has done for you. It's a discipline because our, in our sinful nature, our bent is towards forgetting. Our bent is to go and enjoy the blessings of what God has done and forgetting the one who has done it and why he's done it. The second lesson that the Feast of Purim teaches us is that we must do this together. It's a corporate activity. We must celebrate. We must feast together. The book of Esther is full of feasts, like I said. It begins with a feast and it ends with a feast. It begins with the, king's, the king Ahasuerus' two Persian feasts. It ends with these two feasts of Purim of the, among the Jews. You have a feast when Esther ascends to be queen, and you have a feast when Mordecai ascends to power to be the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire. And then there are, of course, the two feasts that Esther had when she brought Haman and the king together to confront Haman with what he had plotted against her people. And the Bible is full of feasts. Feasts were major elements in the worship of God's people in the Old Testament. And when Jesus came as the Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for and hoping in, when he came, it says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. So much of his ministry happened around the table. 
as he met both with his own followers and with those who did not yet know him. And how much of his teaching, how many of his parables are about feasts, banquets, meals to illustrate life in the kingdom of God? And the Bible ends with God's people feasting at the same table with the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. In the Old Testament, they celebrated Passover, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. These feasts were to gather God's people together to remember how God had delivered them, redeemed them, and provided for them. And now Purim is added to that. We don't have obligatory feasts in the church. Those Old Testament feasts, Passover, Tabernacles, Weeks, those feasts pointed to Christ. They were shadows of who he came to be and what he came to do. But we have the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day is our day of feasting and celebration together. We gather to hear the word of God. We do that in order to remember and to reflect. And having remembered and reflected upon who God is and what he has done for us, then we celebrate together. We feast together. We celebrate. We gather at the Lord's table, like we will in just a few moments, to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's kind of a shame that today, for expediency and convenience sake, all we give you is a little tiny piece of bread and a little tiny cup of juice or wine. We do that because it would be very difficult to celebrate the way they did in the early church when mostly it was house churches. They would gather around a table. They would worship. And they'd have a meal together. They called it the agape feast, the love feast. And that when they wrapped up that meal together, they would set apart the bread and the cup and they would hear the words of Jesus. This is my body. This is my blood. Do this, why? In remembrance of me. Celebrating together what God has done for us is crucial to the Christian life. The Lord's Supper has become so de-emphasized in the life of the church. But it's part of our worship. It's part of a celebration. It's feasting over who God is and what he has done for us. It's important to our spiritual growth. One commentator pointed out that the, the joy of Purim is an eschatological joy. And that phrase struck with me. The joy of Purim is an eschatological joy. In other words, the people of the Jewish people in exile in Persia, as they celebrated this deliverance, from the evil plan of Haman and the total destruction of their race. We're not to focus on God's deliverances in this world, but ultimately to look to God to bring about the ultimate deliverance from their ultimate enemies who weren't the Persians or the Moabites or the Ammonites or the Amalekites. Their ultimate enemies are Satan, sin, and death. And they were to look to the one whom God had promised would come to defeat death, to defeat Satan, to defeat the enemies of God, and to establish the kingdom of God on earth. 
And so when we hear the words, this is my body, this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, we also hear the words of Paul saying, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember, reflect, celebrate, and then look in hope to the future because he is coming again to bring his work of salvation to completion. I've always lamented the fact, I mean, the Lord's Supper necessarily is a solemn event because we come confessing our sin. We come remembering and reflecting upon that the Son of God, the eternal perfect Son of God, bore the punishment, the wrath, and the judgment of God, eternal wrath and judgment of God, that our sins deserve. He bore it on the cross for us. We remember this. We reflect upon it. And of course, it's a sobering thing. But it should end in celebration. I've always felt that in our final hymn at the end of the Lord's Supper, we ought to bring out the whole band, you know, the drums, the, 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 the cymbals, the, the horns, the big horn section. That's what we need to celebrate what God has done for us. It should end on a note of raucous celebration like Purim did. But then it brings us to the last step of how to respond to God's work of grace in our lives. We are to remember, we're to celebrate, and finally, we're to give. I love the fact that it throws this into the account, that they were to give. It says, the days of Purim were days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Because that's what happens when you remember what God has done for you, you reflect upon it, you celebrate it, next new creation instinct of your new life in Christ is to go give to somebody else because of what God has done for you we deserve only hell and eternal judgment but in light of what God has done for us in light of his grace giving is this new inclination that the Holy Spirit has planted in our heart to respond to what God has done by giving to others to meeting the needs of others of sharing Christ with others in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he's exhorting the Corinthian church to give to the needs of the poor, poor brothers and sisters in Christ, elsewhere in the church. And as he gives that exhortation, listen to what he says. This is 2 Corinthians 8, beginning in verse 7. See that you excel in this act of grace. I say this not as a command. Notice that. He's not going to say, you're not going to bring down the weight of the law. And, and put it as an obligation to be done as a legalistic thing to keep the law. He says, I'm not giving this to you as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. That you, to prove that you really love the Lord. That you know what he did for you. That you have experienced the gospel. That you see what you deserved and what you didn't get by God's grace. And all that he has given you by his grace. To prove that the love that Christ has put in your heart is real, it's from the Holy Spirit, it's a new creation, give, prove it, give. And then he goes on to say, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's gospel-based giving. And that's what I want to see in any church of God's people. You give because God has done so much for you. And he's given so much to you. And he is a God who provides, a God who meets your needs. So you give out of love, not out of obligation. 
It proves that love is real. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul chastised this Corinthian church for the way that they were acting in the Lord's Supper because they were rushing ahead. The wealthy, as we know from history and putting it in context, the wealthy were rushing ahead to eat all the best of the food and the poor were getting to the meal and they were not being fed. They were leaving this agape feast that was tied to the Lord's Supper. They were leaving the meal hungry. And Paul says, how can this be? How can you celebrate the gospel and then turn away the poor people and leave them hungry? It's the exact opposite of what the gospel is about. This is why we take up an offering, a second offering. <laughs> if you're not used to the church, you might think, wait a minute, didn't we just take an offering? Why are, they, are they really greedy people? Why are they taking up a second offering after the Lord's Supper? We do that because we think that should be the impulse of your heart at that moment. Having remembered, reflected, and celebrated what Christ has done for you by dying for your sins on the cross, we just want to give you an in-the-moment, existential opportunity to express that love that ought to flow from remembering and reflecting what Christ has done for you. We do it for your benefit so that you can give to the poor. And that's what we use all that money for. We give it to the poor people in our congregation and in our community. We're following the example of Purim. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day, the feast day of the church. It's for our spiritual strength. It's to enable us to remember, to reflect upon the rest that Christ has given us, to celebrate it together, and then to give to others out of the love that Christ has first shown to us. Remember, celebrate, give. That's the Christian life. That's what discipleship is. Remember, celebrate, give. That's how to live like the one leper and not like the other nine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, that your spirit has spoken to us and has ensured that your word has come faithfully to us through all these generations. And thank you that your spirit not only gives us your word, but also he dwells with us, in us, to enable us to understand it, to apply it to our lives, to remember who you are and all that you've done for us. You've been so good to us. And now, Lord, as we come to your table, be glorified in the love that your people show to you and to one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.